We are back for another edition of the MMA Report Podcast. I am Jason Floyd. That is my guy, Daniel Galvan. It is Wednesday, August the 16th. It is UFC 292 Fight Week. Good morning, Daniel. How's it going, man? Man, there's always a little bit of a different vibe when we record. We have the pay-per-view we look forward to. You know, UFC 292. It it is not the greatest pay-per-view of all time, I'm going to be honest with you. You know, we got a dude that was fighting like on the prelims on a fight night card last week, now on the pay-per-view main card this week. But we got a good main event, and I'm excited to see O'Malley and Sterling, bro. I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing good, man. Doing good, man. Uh, you know, it's uh, you know, a little bumper to bumper traffic driving into the studio this morning. But, uh, you know, but it's one of those things. I don't know if, if you have these same type of situations where, you know, you're in traffic, especially like you know, if it's like the day of the pod or like the day before the pod. I'm like, I'm thinking about things to talk about, you know, like. I think we're probably going to have a good discussion on Aljamain Sterling and his place in UFC and, and MMA history. Um, but it's kind of crazy to think of, you know, this is a fight card that we've seen two changes on the main card within the past couple of days. Of course, Ian Gary loses his opponent, Jeff Neal. Neil Magny steps up here on, on short nose. And we got a guy that we were talking about last week, Damon Blackshear. Goes out there, gets the third Twister submission win in UFC history. Homeboy is right back on the train. He's going to Boston to take on Mario Batista. Of course, lost his opponent in Cody Garbrandt. Um, you know, I will say this. I, I, you know, we'll obviously be talking more in depth on, on UFC night, 292 here in a little bit. Mauler Vera, Pedro Munoz, that to me could be a great one. And obviously, uh, Cheeto Vera uh, may be the biggest Sh- uh, Sean O'Malley fan come Saturday night because you, know, you have to imagine that if somehow Sugar uh, pulls it off on Saturday night and Cheeto gets a victory, you got to think that's got to be the, the first title defense there. For Sean O'Malley, we got the return of Chris Weidman. What's he going to look like? Uh, in terms of that, we got the Ultimate Fighter finales, a part of the TV prelims on this one as well. And, and I was telling Daniel right before the show, like if people did not see that Jason Knight Kurt Hallball fight uh, from last week's episode of the Ultimate Fighter, do yourself a favor, go over to ESPN Plus and and watch that thing. That, that was a fun matchup between those two guys. So man, everything's good for me, man. It's a little bit of a shorter week for me because I leave on Friday to head up to uh New York, New York, New Jersey. First uh road game of of the year. Uh going to uh Yankees Red Sox. Looking to that. Apparently, I learned this yesterday. I guess um there's going to be a protest outside Yankee Stadium on Friday. Uh some Yankee fans uh, want to see Brian Casper get fired. Oh my gosh. Don't get caught up in that. I mean, man, Brian Cashman. He's been the GM of the Yankees for like, what, 15 years at this point? Oh, God. It's, I, I think it's got to be longer than that. That's crazy. That's a long, long, long tenure. I mean, you never, ever see, you know, too many sports teams allow an executive in that position for that long. I mean, since I remember watching baseball, Brian Cashman's been involved with the Yankees. So he was, he's been the GM since 1998. That is crazy. He was the assistant GM in 96. So he has been in the Yankees organization since 1986. Wow. That was literally 11 years before I was, I'm bad at math. That was nine years before I was born. 
So I'm mean, just before I was born. You know, I'm doing you. I'm pulling up the Wikipedia here. He was yeah. named the assistant general manager in 1992, and then became took over as general manager in 1995. Woo! Long damn time, Daniel. Yeah, there's probably like two fighters that are fighting on this uh, UFC 292 that are younger than um, forever. How long? He's been GM. So maybe the Yankees fans do have a point. Maybe it's about time for Brian to step away. But I'm no baseball expert. I'm guessing a lot of the problems with the Yankees maybe is – I don't know. I tell you what, I'm going to let the Yankee fans cook. If they're pissed off enough to protest, I'm going to let them cook. They deserve it. They know way more about the Yankees than I do. I just hope you don't get involved in the fracas and look, uh, you're look, able to you know, have a chill game you, at the Yankees Red Sox. Look, you know, me, me and the boys, we're going to have a good time. We're going we're to have a good time. It's you know, I'm looking forward to that there. Uh, fly up to uh, up to New Jersey uh, on Friday morning. And, uh, and then uh, I'm actually going to stay a little bit uh, later there on Sunday, kind of uh, do the whole uh, NYC thing on, on Sunday morning with the you know have have a good time up there so really looking forward to that of course looking forward to everything going on one of the notes I wanted to mention here uh, so Monday I'm doing my rankings for Bellator of course Bellator had the card last weekend Logan Strolley gets to win there in the main event and as I'm going down the rankings one of the things that is very became very evident to me was Oh, there's a lot of fighters who are no longer uh, available in the Bellator ranking. So I just, right before the show here, I went through, and I don't think there should be any surprise here that the the weight divisions that had the most fighters in it is lightweight and featherweight. Featherweight having 44 uh, available fighters to be ranked, lightweight 42, heavyweight 16, light heavyweight 16, middleweight 22, welterweight 31, Bantamweight, 25, women's featherweight, 9, and women's flyweight, 19. Yeah, for a promotion that is probably going to sell fairly quickly, something like that does make sense. I mean, why have somebody involved in the organization that you know you aren't going to book again before you get sold? Mm-hmm. You know, give them that opportunity. I don't know what happened. I don't know why the rankings got cleared up. I don't know if it was just a matter of contracts or, you know, aren't being renegotiated. So fighters are being left off their deal uh, without re-signing or what. But, you know, those little tea leaves are like, uh, things are things are cooking up. But, uh, yeah, I mean, who knows how many more events we're going to get after Bellator 300. I mean, it really seems like a fitting place to end these things. Obviously, some of the Bellator fighters that are under contract are going to go to whichever organization or company buys them. You know, that's probably some of the most valuable aspects of the Bellator acquisition is your Patricio Pitbull. Well, after that loss to Ryzen, I don't know. But is your AJ McKee. Those are the types of fighters that are exciting values for a potential buyer. Yeah, I saw a note. I forget the exact injury. I saw it the other day. Patricia Pitbull is actually going to have some surgery. But, you know, you talk about Bellator 300. That was announced last week. Four title fights, heavyweight uh, fight, heavyweight title fight going to uh, be the headliner of this card, Ryan Bear versus Linton Vassell. Of course, this is a rematch between those two guys. Their first matchup taking place at light heavyweight, now at heavyweight. And we've really seen Linton Vassell, what he's been able to do, uh, you know, since moving up to the heavyweight division. And, you know, and I, I talk about this all the time is, I remember having a conversation with Linton probably, I don't know, a fight or two ago. You know, and he talked about one of his biggest things that he learned moving up to heavyweight division is understanding 
where he needed to be weight-wise to maximize performance. Of course, you got Chris Cyborg against Kat Zingano. Of course, those two have been going back for some time now. You got Usman Nurmagomedov defending the lightweight title against Brent Primus. Of course, that's the, the semifinals of the Bellator lightweight Grand Prix. And then you got the uh, women's flyweight title fight, Liz Carmouche against Elimile McFarlane. Of course, uh, you know, I, it, when I saw this fight get announced, and of course, everyone knows the relationship that Liz and, and Lima they have. And I remember last time I talked to Lima, she talked about this like ideal path to end her fight career. And her ideal scenario was this would be her last fight. Now we'll see whether or not that happens. I did see a clip on social media over the past couple of days. Scott Coker was on Jimmy Smith's show on Sirius XM. John Nash, a bloody elbow, of course, an excellent reporter in mixed martial arts. Know that he's hearing that this is going to be their Bellator's last event. Scott Coker denied that, said they're working on Bellator 301, Bro. Bellator 302. I mean, look, Scott Bro. has to, even if, even if, and look, I don't know whether Bellator 300 will be the last Bellator event. I think if if you asked me if I was going to put money on it, is it the last event maybe run by the current management of Bellator? I'd probably, I'd make that bet. But it's... But Scott's in a situation, he has to answer that question the way he did, Daniel. Bro, I ain't no rocket scientist. I ain't no investigative journalist. I got to ask you a real simple question. How many other Bellator events have had four championship fights? I want to say they've maybe had one or two. It maybe had three, but yeah, never four, no. <laughs> so you're telling me there, there's talks about selling. There's a there's a show with a nice round number called Bellator 300, and this one has four championship fights announced, and they're worried about Bellator 301 and 302. <laughs> I call BS. They uh, are but, they are uh, but, they are emptying out. Okay. The, yeah. I'm Jimmy Smith. You're Scott Coker. Are you answering the question any different than Scott did? He's got to say what he said. He is like he has to sit there and he not proclaim, even if he truly knows this may be the last event. He has to answer that question the way he did. It's a, it's a good way of framing it. If I'm in Scott Coker's shoes, I'm not going to be like, "Oh yeah, no, we're totally done after Bellator 300," until you announce an acquisition being done. Obviously, that's a good point. Putting putting myself in Scott's shoes, but putting myself in my shoes using context clues, I'm going to imagine Bellator 300 will be the last Bellator event under this ownership group. All right, let's, let's play a little hypothetical game. PFL acquires Bellator, which, I mean, that is kind of the, the, the belief that'll happen. How many current PFL fires will be on the PFL roster in 2024? 20%? I, I would say a lot more. I would say a lot more, but not... That's that's a tough game to play. I don't really. I mean, here here's the other aspect. If PFL just merges the Bellator roster into what they do, and they continue to run the promotion the way they run the promotion, there's about to be a lot of fires going to be free agents. Certainly, absolutely, there will be. But I, I think just twenty percent. That's a real small number, especially because these are fighters that PFL has negotiated contracts with. So it's not like. Think about how think about some of those contracts, some of those PFL Europe people signed, where they were hard to break out of. 
I, I think it's going to be hard for PFL to break away all those contracts because they have to spend that much capital on all the Bellator deals, and they'd rather have those Bellator deals than the PFL deals. Who's to say that they prefer the finances of a Bellator deal versus the finances of a PFL deal? So I'm thinking about the infrastructure that's already there for why I don't think there'll be that dramatic release of fighters in the PFL. Okay, I, I wanted, I'm going to try. I'm trying to pull up the 2023 roster. The PFL, uh, the PFL website is not very good for this uh, test pattern. I want to really run here. Let me see. Can, can we? All right, twenty twenty three. I mean, can we not? Can we not? Okay, there, okay. We finally we have a searchable. Let's take the Bellator lightweight division versus the PFL lightweight division. So let, let's just look at the top ten. I'm looking at my personal top ten. So I've got, obviously, Usman Armagomedov, the champion. Then I have Patricky Pitbull, Alexander Shabby, Tafik Masayev, Sidney Atlaw, Brent Primus, Islam Maidov, AJ McKee, Aghazi Radimov, Amansir Banakwari, and Archie Colgan. So if we look at the lightweights, uh, Ahmad Amir, this is PFL now, Alexander Martinez, Anthony Romero, Bruno Mar- Miranda, Hausman Fio, Olivia Abin Mercier, Natan Schultz, Clay Collard, Shane Burgos, Stevie Ray, Yamanu Nishikawa. Okay, so if you look at the PFL, Burgos, clearly safe. OAB, clearly safe. Clay Collard, I would mark as safe. Outside of that, I might just take the whole Bellator top 10. If you're asking me, eight-man tournament, who makes the cut? Yeah, I agree with you. I think if you're doing eight-man tournament, who makes the cut? I think those are the three fighters. Who, who, who? If we're talking eight-man tournament, all right, number one seed is Usman Nurmagomedov. Number two seed, A.J. McKee. OAM three. Maybe throw Burgos four, even though things haven't gone well. You only got four spots left. Yeah. And I, I mean, and literally, I've only named two Bellator fires at this point. Yeah, no, I mean... And I, I miss book. It's not an eight man tournament. How many dudes are in the play? How many dudes are in a regular season in PFL? I, I, I like 12? 12. I think if you're PFL and this merger goes through, I think your season, somehow you have to figure out how do you expand it. Does it have to be a longer season than April through November? Maybe is it, you know, you start in March or, or February, and maybe is it more going to be a 16? fire field when it comes into it now look the biggest advantage if if bellator and pfl are are brought together is we probably get the female fight we all want to see in chris cyborg and kayla harrison i I was watching an interview kayla did the other day with with mark ramondi and you know looks like she's gonna be on ice this entire year she she is by far the biggest loser if pfl acquires bellator yeah, because there really aren't that many losers, but she's number one because the same way how you mentioned to me, Jay Uso has got himself a good marketing position now, possibly as a free agent between WWE and AEW off of the hottest storyline. Kayla, if this deal goes down, now has one significant partner who is very interested in signing her off the table. 
And we, we're going to get the great fight, but she's going to get paid a whole lot less for it. I mean, look, there. I mean, I'm just kind of sitting here thinking about the potential matchups that could be made, you know, between various fighters, you know. I mean, I think that it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out, but, like, I don't – Scott Coker very well may have been lying his ass off in that interview, but he had to. He had to. I mean, that, that's that's what you have to do. I just – I've said this multiple times, and I'll continue to say that. PFL, if you acquire Bellator, you better be looking at that Bellator staff and realizing there's people on that staff that can make your promotion better. And I'm wow. sorry. If Scott Coker wants to be the head of this new organization, you make Scott Coker his new organization. Sorry, Ray Seffo. Scott Coker should be the guy leading promotion. And if it's not Scott Coker, you got to bring in Mike Kogan. I'm, I, and look, not trying to be a shill for Mike Kogan. Me and Mike Kogan have maybe talked once or twice. That, to me, is if BFL's looking at this a smart way, that's how you do it. Yeah, Kogan, Coker, smart men who know how to do this thing damn right. I mean, the one thing is, Beltor has not been lighting the world on fire since the pandemic started. I mean, they have been, it has not been good. It it just, from a business standpoint, getting hot, getting new fans, hasn't been working. So that's a downside. Otherwise... Not only those two, but there's so many people within the framework of Bellator that are so talented and, and really skilled that it would be a nice addition to the PFL. Yeah, I mean, you you want to talk about wh- where Bellator really lost out with the pandemic is they lost at DAZN money. When DAZN, them and DAZN part away, I mean, DAZN paid them a crap ton of money. That was a huge, and you know, and that's like, as you look ahead with PFLs, we interesting to kind of see what happens with their television deal. Are they back on ESPN in 2024, or are they somewhere else? I mean, and we all know this, there's a lot of players out there right now. You look at what Amazon has done with one championship. You know, I, I truly expect that you're going to see Apple become a player. We're seeing them become a player with, with what they do with MLS. I'll tell you, I swear I get at least one or two notifications a week about an MLS game on my iPhone. So, I mean, it's going to be interesting to kind of see how it does a playoff. By the way, uh, another uh, little note to uh, mention here. You know, before the show, I'm, I'm over on the MMA Reddit. Just, you know, I'd like to go over there and maybe make sure I just didn't miss something. That's how uh, past couple of days. Of course, everyone probably knows of the, I guess we call it X, formerly known as Twitter. There is a a handle called UFC, what's it? I think it's UFC Roster Watch. They had a tweet last night that said, fighter removed, James Krause. And you know what's crazy is last night I had, I the way I found out about this was I had the urge. I was just thinking I was in bed. I don't know why I was in bed thinking about James Krause. I've got problems. But Wait, I was you looking to place a bet on something. Is that what, is that what was, you're trying to do? I was, yeah, yeah. I was looking for a Discord to uh, have him take over my account. Um, I, I was just thinking in my bed about James Kraus. I was like, man, I haven't heard much about James Kraus, and and uh, I'm just going to do a Twitter search of James Kraus, completely unprompted. And then, boom! I saw that he was removed from the roster. I'm like, that is strange. That uh, that that my urge to look for James Kraus the same day he was removed from the roster. And the reason why I had that urge to look for James Krause is real simple. It's just crazy to me that not much has come out of this huge story since it happened. And it happened around winter last year. Makes you wonder. Makes you think. 
Why did he get removed from the roster just now? Is something about to drop? Will it drop as soon as you press upload on this podcast? Well, you know that's the way it works. So I'm trying to find a tweet. I want to, yeah. So um, I saw this the other day, and so this came from a Twitter account at Las Vegas Local, and it's one of these tweets. I go, hmm. I wonder if there's maybe anything related with this one. And the tweet was federal law enforcement agents took several boxes of documents and other evidence out of a major Vegas strip casino recently as part of an ongoing investigation into illegal sports betting ring per source. You see that tweet and look, and like I always say, perception is not reality, but you just, you think about that as like, I wonder if this could have anything to do with what we saw happen with, with James Krause. Yeah, it does seem like sports gambling is absolutely something that's on the radar of the federal government, big time. If that has nothing to do with James Krause, I don't know. I don't know anything about that James Krause story. None of us do. It's mysterious. It's interesting. Whenever information comes out, I think we're going to seep into it like a kid eating a cookie because we want to know what happened. And the less we know, the more we imagine, you know. Is he involved in this gambling ring? Are strip clubs involved? How many papers are involved? We have so many questions. And uh, I have no idea when the hell we're going to get any of these answers, Jason. Yeah, I mean, I was just looking to see if the Nevada State Athletic Commission has a meeting anytime soon. Their last meeting was at the end of July. Um, Because as you were talking there, the one thing that came to my mind was, you know, there really hasn't been much talk about Jeff Molina since he got his, um, his suspension. You know, a temporary suspension from the Nevada State Athletic Commission, which it's all allegedly related to this situation. Yeah, and this is an active fighter who has an incentive in to, to get back in the cage, right? I mean, this is the prime of his career. And so he's got to get – figure it out or, you know, time is passing. But uh, there's been nothing on this from Molina, yeah. from Kraus, from anything. I'm trying you know, to – plenty of – I'm trying to think about how long ago it was when he got that suspension. I mean, it's been, I feel like it's been a couple of months since he got that temporary suspension. Yeah. It's, I think it's been even longer than that, man. Yeah. It's been a while. I mean, and it's just, it's one of those things of like, at some point, some nuggets going to drop on this story. And I think the biggest question is, is how deep does it go in relation to people involved in the MMA community. Are are there other fighters involved? Are there whatnot? And and that to me, and and I know we've had this conversation on the show about the UFC to me is a very weird position because I'm not sure what they can do to try to eliminate some of these things. And what and what I mean by eliminate things is, you know, if if you're you're a fighter. I'm your head coach. We're in a locker room and there's three, four other teams in there. And let's just say we're sitting in a state that has legalized betting. We look over, we see a guy hitting pads and we're like, Ooh, that guy don't look good. What stops us from picking up that phone and, and placing some money on his opponent? That to me is a weird predicament that the UFC is in is, and I don't know what they can do to protect themselves from this. From the UFC's point of view, I think it's clearly just all punitive, all in hindsight. If we catch you, 
trading insider information, you will be punished severely. You will be gone forever from the UFC. Actually, this just came to my mind. So I was interviewing Jeff Creighton about three weeks ago. Uh, he just got a, a win in uh, Uriah Favors promotion. But prior to that, he beat Joey Davis in Bellator. And he was, I want to say he was like an eight to one underdog, something crazy like that. And so I jokingly in the interview go, oh man, so your fellas uh, make a little money and you get a little cut. And he's like, I'll let you uh, think about that. And I was like, wow, man, I wonder if Bellator has maybe said something to the fighters about uh, sports betting. It, it just, it's one of those things as you were talking, it just came to my mind. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's going to be a thing that if they haven't, they will, because this appears to be a regulation thing. This appears to be, you know, if, if sports gambling is going to continue to grow, the athletes involved can't be betting on themselves, can't be betting against themselves, can't be betting with their peers. We see it in so many other leagues, how stringent. So many other college uh, programs also. So it, to me, is just across the board in this country, that's a focus. It's going to stretch and touch not only the UFC, but all the other promotions in America. Isn't there like a, a Iowa football player that's being investigated for improper betting? I think I would imagine so. I just feel like I've seen several different college players involved in different types of gambling situations. But Iowa, probably. I don't know, though. It's just, yeah, it's just, there's so many, I just forget. I feel like I saw this the other day. I want to say it was a football player. Um that was being investigated, maybe for uh, placing uh, bets on his team. Yeah, and then there's a kid who also left Iowa State, too. So five Iowa kids, four Hawkeyes named in gambling probe. Okay, Iowa so yeah. players too. I'm guessing we both probably found the same article over on ESPN, I'm guessing. Maybe. Yeah, it says, uh, the headline is, more Iowa State, Iowa players yeah. charged in sports betting investigation. Um, former players to do alleged several athletes placed bets on game, which they played in according to criminal complaints filed Thursday in district courts for story in Johnson counties. The players face the charge of tampering with records and aggravated misdemeanor for allegedly concealing their identity and electronic wagering activities. The group includes Iowa state starting running back Jaleel Brock and three teammates with starting experience offense tackle, Jake Rimsey, defense cow, Isaiah Lee and tight end Deshaun Hanika. And apparently they made 11 wagers on games they played in, eight on games they played in during 2022. Yeah, so they just made wagers. Like, I'm pretty sure sports betting is legalized in Massachusetts, of course. That's where UFC 292 is. It just, I think it would be fascinating to know if you looked at all the fighters, all their corners, what, I think it would be, you would have to imagine someone's placing bets. But yeah. what's that percentage? That to me would be what if you did a a off the record? Are you placing about UFC two ninety two while you're working this event? How many? And here's the other thing. And I think I know the answer to this. I would not be surprised if there's a good percentage of people who cover MMA that are also placing bets on the sport. Yeah, I think everyone does. You know why? Because the the gambling industry makes a crap load of money. So if no one was betting, it probably wouldn't be making too much money. But yeah. it's that freaking popular. Your grandma might be placing a wager on like, you know, 
Abdul Kareem Al Sawadi beating George Hardwick and cashing in, right? Like that could happen, you know, for those that watched the contender series last mm-hmm. night, massive upset there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so, but so yesterday afternoon, I'm looking at that, that contender series lineup. And my first thought was like, it's like, man, you've got a, a guy who's made multiple title defense to cage wars. Doesn't even get in straight to the UFC. And then of course he goes in there and loses to a fury champion. Um, you know, and I, and by the way, you know, the first, I, I'm just saying this right now, Dana, I, if you are on the UFC roster and you got two straight losses in a row, you have to hate the contender series because they're just signing fools. I mean, I think what they've done, they've gave them all five winners contracts for the first two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. They're just signing them. They're like, here's your deal. Here's your low level deal. Cheap, Boom. cheap labor. Yeah, cheap labor. It's just like that's the strategy, and it's just like, damn. Um, yeah. Before we get into UFC 292, do got to mention one of the, the things of coming out of the Association Boxing Commission Combat Sports meetings is new rules that are in there. And uh, the, some of these rules, I got to tell you, Dan, I really like. I, I think the eye poke thing to me is, is one I really like, giving these fighters additional time. Also, I like this rule of allowing the cut man to come in and work on a, a foul or accidental headbutt. I do like that rule change. Yeah, I think what I saw out of the changes is you just saw those that were getting fouled getting more options, things that made logical sense. And both those things make sense. Not to wait until the round for the cut to be addressed if a foul creates it and giving more time on the eye poke. That, to me, was just a no-brainer, common-sense addition that we're going to see moving forward with the rules. Now, the most interesting rule is separating stalling fighters and kudos to bloody elbow for the story on this where it says quote positioning fighters for a restart after a foul warning physicians examination on or a point deduction intention a fighter should never be allowed to improve their position based on fouling when a fighter who's in a disadvantaged position fouls and the referee must stop the action. It it can be reasonably accomplished. The fire should return to their positions after the time is taken for the warning, physical examination or point deduction. Uh, When a fighter who's in a position of, of advantage fouls, the referee must stop the action for a warning, physical examination or point deduction. The foul, uh, the fouling fighter should lose his position of advantage when the bout resumes also goes on to say it notes that the terms advantage or disadvantage do not all always equate with top or bottom example would be a fighter whose strategy is to avoid standing up pull up his opponent to guard to increase the chances of getting submission if the top fighter fouls it may be more appropriate to return them to the grounded position here's my only issue with this one daniel we live in a sport where sometimes referees aren't very uh decisive in their foul warnings or i mean it's like how many times have we watched a fight and a dude clearly get grabs a cage multiple times and it's like literally he has to grab the cage about 10 times for a point could get deducted yeah often all the time more often than not that happens where it's just a quick grab and it's a quick warning and it's not clear whether or not a foul was was done and if it should be scored within the scorecard so you bring up a hell of a point and i feel like we're not going to see a dramatic shift in that type of officiating after these rules either i think it's gonna be more of the same uh, and if you did not see terrence mckinney's actually going to appeal his uh loss uh to his, his matchup prior to last week because his opponent grabbing the fence I, 
good luck. I don't see that thing getting changed. I mean, yeah, I'm, I, 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 I mean, the reality is, is I mean, a, a fighter appealing a, a decision. I mean, I mean, look, Akeem Dowdu should probably should probably put a claim for those scorecards. Oh my God! How did Cub Swanson win that? Oh, fight! Even, that even, was crazy. Even Cub Swanson knows he didn't win that fight. No, I mean, get, you but, know, give the man his flowers. He's a legend, but he was literally congratulating Dewadu after the fight, and then just, oh my gosh, bro! But Akeem, man, you gotta try to finish fights, man. I mean, you leave your, you leave your. I mean, it's like they. I mean. I get that you don't want to leave the, the, the result in the hands of judges, but this is the type of stuff that can happen. I mean, and it's like, oh, man, yeah, 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 Cub, Cub knew he lost that. But, but I mean, like, to me, if I would have told you, and just briefly talk about last week's uh, fight card, that, hey, there'd be a fighter in the main event scores eight takedowns, and it's Vicente Luque. You would have said no damn way. I know. When you look at what Rafael Dos Anjos brings to the table, it was the – the control, the wrestling of Luque it was a stunner. But you know what? Luque looking really good at a 170 pounder. And yeah, just quickly, UFC fight night. All I got to say is the prelims were awesome. That was the most fun part of the card. I enjoyed the prelims. The main card was all right. I mean, Rancheri Dawkins was a good one. Yasmin Lucindo, pretty dominant against Pollyanna Vienna. But last week's fight night, it was literally just some fights. Now we have. Some pay per view fights. Yeah, I mean Vicente Luque eight eleven in takedowns, twelve minutes of control time, landed a hundred and thirty eight strikes. He looked at it, and of course, you know we we talked about it, you know, last week here on the show. I mean, you you really didn't know what to expect out of Vicente Luque because of you know the the health issues he's he's had over the past years. Man, he looked absolutely great. We'll see where where they go with him. In terms of that one, of course, uh, as always, we appreciate everyone tuning in for this episode of the MMA Report Podcast. If you're listening to us on the podcast channels, if you can uh, rate, review, that really does help us out. Of course, if you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to hit that thumbs up button. That truly does help us out a ton. Of course, if you're not subscribed to the channel, be sure to do that as well. But Daniel, UFC 292 coming up here on Saturday night, of course, headlined by Aljamain Sterling and Sean O'Malley. And of course, the co-main event, also a title matchup. And Zhang Wei defends her title against Amanda Lemos. And, you know, I was talking about, you know, being in, in traffic, coming to the, the studio this morning. And, you know, I'm thinking about Aljamain Sterling, and, and I'm listening to his coach, Ray Longo, talk this matchup. And you talk about UFC champion histories and fighters who just are underappreciated or maybe don't get the respect. Is Aljamain Sterling... The UFC champion that just gets the most disrespect. And and the only thing I can think of is I I think it truly does go back to how he became champion because he's the only fighter in UFC history to win a UFC title via disqualification. Yeah, that is that is absolutely I think the case why we look at Aljo that way. That and the fact of he hasn't had a lot of fights as champion since he won the championship in March of twenty twenty one. Since he won that championship, he's only had three fights. He's taken on Jan once, Dillashaw, and Henry Cejudo. The win over TJ Dillashaw, TJ Dillashaw was not fully functioning. That was a fight where you saw it and you just thought, well, TJ, you have to retire. For Aljamain Sterling, his most impressive performance in my mind was what we just saw him do against Henry Cejudo. Mm -hmm. But yes, Jason, Aljo is the most disrespected champion. I think some of it's for good reason, right? 
Alexander Volkanovsky has a much more impressive resume than Aljo, as does Islam Mahajev, as does Adin Sanya, as does John Jones. Aljo still might be the most talented bantamweight fighter we have ever seen fight in this sport, but it's just not a it's not a it's not a clear cut case. He isn't walking through fools. There's a lot of mishap and weirdness going on with this Aljo title reign. Think about this though, Aljo holds the record for most successful title defenses in UFC bantamweight title history. Take that, that one in. A hell of a case. A hell there was of a case. three. three yeah, right? prior to him, Dominic Cruz had done it twice against Uriah Faber and Demetrius Johnson. Hannon Burrell did it twice against Michael McDonald and Eddie Wineland. Dillashaw did it twice against Joe Soto and Hannon Burrell. Those are the only fighters to make two successful title defenses. And Aljo's already beaten them. And and to me, it is, I mean, look, I understand that maybe he doesn't have the fighting style that gets a lot of people excited. You know, there, there's just, there is a, look, if you've ever gone out to watch a UFC pay-per-view, you know there is a certain part of the fan base that does not like someone who has a grappling-heavy style. And to me, Aljo just doesn't get the credit. And, and, I, and I heard John Anik bring up the stat. Aljamain Sterling has 15 UFC wins. That is more wins than Dominic Cruz had combined in the UFC and WEC. And when you talk about best bantamweights in mixed martial arts history, if you do do not want to say Aljamain Sterling is the greatest bantamweight of all time, I, I don't have a problem with that. If you say it's Dominic Cruz, I have no problem with that. But he is in the conversation. He has to be in the conversation as greatest bantamweights in MMA history. Without a doubt. And I think he may be the best band in my history. I think when you look at the resume on paper, Aljamain has accomplished more than any other bantamweight fighter. I think it's when you start looking at what actually happened and how you felt watching these guys perform at the highest level, that's when you probably have a stronger case for how Dominic Cruz looked so elite at times. But I think Aljamain is probably the best bantamweight of all time. And if he comes out here and just has his way with Sean O'Malley in this championship defense, he can kind of solidify that as he more than likely vacates the Bantamweight championship and moves on up to 145. Yeah, and I was mentioning about the interview uh, with Ray Longo. I thought one interesting thing was Anik brought up the question about, you know, where where does Sean O'Malley rank in terms of strikers that – Aljamain Sterling has gone up against, and he said, he goes, I do not feel that he's the hardest puncher that Aljo has gone against. He believed that's Peter Yan, but he said what Sean does bring to the table is the length and the accuracy that he has. And, you know, watching the the countdown show, what I thought was really kind of fascinating about on the, on the Sean O'Malley side was, A, his coach talking about, this is the first time Sean's going to, you know, potentially go 25 minutes, conserving your energy, making sure that it's on point for 25 minutes. But the other thing that really stuck out to me was the whole countdown show. There is no talk about what is O'Malley doing to get ready for the grappling aspect. And it's one of these things of, we all know Sean O'Malley's path to winning this fight. He has to keep this fight at range. He cannot let Aljo get to his legs and no way can he let Aljo get on his back. If Aljo gets on the back of Aljamain Sterling, excuse me, Aljamain Sterling gets on the back of Sean O'Malley, I think it's over and I think it's over pretty quickly. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't see Sean O'Malley surviving that, but to me it's how much, and look, and 
I mentioned this before. I think O'Malley and his team have done a beautiful job of putting himself in the right matchups leading up to this. But to me, how much of this camp has been about weathering adversity? What happens if Aljo gets on his back? What happens if Aljo gets him down? I mean, look, if Aljamain Sterling can take down Henry Cejudo the way he did, and we saw what Peter Young can do, Aljo should have no issues getting this matchup to the ground. And that is the clear path to win this fight. Yeah, and that's why Aljamain Sterling is my pick to win this fight because of that clear factor. Sean surely is doing defensive wrestling, defensive grappling practice, but what you just laid out was perfect. I mean, you could get Dan Gable himself to teach you how to wrestle for this period of time, and it wouldn't be enough to get Sean to the level of Henry Cejudo, who competed in the Olympics, and Henry had a tough way with Aljo. Aljo will likely have his way with O'Malley. But Sean O'Malley is a guy I doubted when he was matched up with Peter Yan. Mm -hmm. Did he win that fight against Peter Yan? Well, according to some judges, he did. Regardless, the fact that he fought Peter that close was impressive enough to me. I thought Peter Yan was going to have his way with Sean O'Malley. Sean O'Malley is incredibly talented, a phenomenal striker. If this fight stays on the feet, he will have success. He will beat Aljo on the feet, in my opinion. I don't think it stays there. But the other thing I'll say is when I look at Sean O'Malley, there's something a little preordained about this dude. Things are just going right for the sugar show. The MMA guys are just blessing him a little too much. So maybe you look at the vibes that are out in the MMA universe, Jason, and you see that the MMA gods are going to bless him with the UFC championship. With Aljo with one foot out the door in a championship run that has been plagued with really interesting and random situations we've never seen, what if we see another unique situation that's absolutely crazy that ends the night with Sean as champ? By the way, going back to that fight against Sean, I just went over to MMA decisions. There was 26 media members who scored the fight listed here. 25 of them scored for Peter Yon, <laughs> including, like, look, when it comes to MMA media and looking at their scorecards, the guy I always look at is Sean Sheehan. He had 29-28 for, for Peter Yon. Um, and, but, yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't think many of us thought. I, I remember being out, watch that fight, and when they announced Sean O'Malley's a winner, I was like, okay. But, like, watching the countdown show, like, to me, it, it's like <laughs> – like, look, I think there's probably a lot of people inside the UFC that would really prefer if Sean O'Malley goes out there because Aljo came out this week and he said 99.9%. This is his last fight. Bantam weight. Now, a legitimate question is what type of weight cut does Aljo have? We all know that he has to cut a ton of weight to get down, so we'll see what he looks like on the scale on Friday. But to me, like I was just looking at the betting odds, and uh, Aljamain Sterling uh, wins via submission plus 150 is kind of a line. I mean, you can, there's there's one sports book that has plus 200, another one plus 185. If you're looking to make a bet on the fight and you want a little action on the main event, to me, uh, Sterling wins via submission plus 150. And maybe if you want to uh, do do another way, I would probably look at O'Malley wins via TKO KO plus 330. Um, you know, I think to me the question really becomes is what happens if this fight does hit, say, minute 18, minute 20, 
minute 22. Does Sean O'Malley got what it takes to go? Because we all know Aljo can go that 25 minutes. But like to me, this is clear that Aljo, I think he, he finishes O'Malley at some point in this fight. But, I mean, look, it's if if Sugar can keep this fight on the feet and keep it at range, he's got a great chance. But I also like the one thing I always think about is I think about the, the Cheeto Vera fight. And I think about the Andre Sukumthal fight that, that Sean had and how those both those guys were able to use leg kicks. And I got to imagine that's been a big part of what Ray Longo has, has put into the head of O'Malley leading in this one. But O'Malley, look, it, it's going to be interesting. And I'm sure he's going to be the fan favorite on Saturday night when he makes that walk inside the TD Garden. But uh, to me, the, the pick is Aljamain Sterling. Of course, co-main event, you got Wei Li, uh, Zhang taking on Amanda Lamos. You know, one thing about Amanda Lamos, I did not realize. You know, she's 36 years old. No, I kind of figured she would have been a little younger, but I uh, know I'm not. So this is the time, bro. This is the time for Amanda to come out and uh, peak in her prime and win that championship. And, bro, I guess Marina Rodriguez, Amanda Lamos looks like a beast. I think this fight, this coming event, is the favorite to be the match of the night. I really think these two, Zhang and Amanda, are going to like stand and trade Jason and I think we're in store for a hell of a, like a barn burner back and forth striking contest. I, I, to me, I mean, this should be Zhang Wali's fight to lose. I, she's to me, she's a better mixed martial arts. I mean, outside of the Maria Rodriguez win, uh, and if I sit there and said who is the best win in a man of Lamos's career, you're, I, it's either Michelle Waterson or Angela Hill. Yeah, and I yeah, don't know I if that's you. a lot to brag about. No, it's not. But the win over Marina was really impressive. And that was one of those, like, I'm ready moments. That's one of those, I'm ready for this high-level challenge. But you are comparing her to greatness. Zhang Wali has established herself as a, as a legendary fighter. Also, she faced adversity, and she was so focused on getting back to the championship picture, she continued to improve as a fighter after losing the championship. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think Zane's going to win this fight. This is important to her. I think we're going to see two champions come out. Boston, two are going to retain, but only one will have the championship on Sunday because Aljo's vacating it for his <laughs> buddy Marab, and I think Zane will retain the championship. I'm going to go a finish, maybe third round. Yeah, I'm kind of expecting finishes both in the main event and co-main event. If you told me one of them does go to distance, I would probably more look at the main event of Aljo and and Sean going distance more than than the co-main event. I would not be surprised if maybe Wei Lee pulls off a submission in, in this one. So we'll see what happens there. Of course, you mentioned about Ian Gary was supposed to take on Jeff Neal. That course one, that one is not going to happen. Neil Magny stepping up here, and uh, you know Neil. Neil, if Neil, if you you hear this, I'm sorry. You're probably not going to like this, but I mean, like at this point, do I mention the G word? Gatekeeper. Uh, I mean, that's kind of, dude. I mean, that's kind of been his role since like 2014. I mean, for reals, like, like look at look at look at his resume. It's green and red, green and red, green and red. <laughs> We're, you're you're going to go out there, you're going to beat Carlos Connick, Craig White, and you're going to lose to Santiago Ponznipio. You're going to beat Robbie Lawler and Anthony Martin, you're going to lose to Michael Chiesa. You're going to beat but, Jeff Neal, Max Griffin, you're going to lose to Shafkat Rachmanov. Okay, but what's the bad loss? The worst loss that Neil Magny has ever had in the UFC is literally freaking like, I don't know. 2013? 
Seth you got to go back to twenty. You got to go back ten years because he's losing <laughs> to Maya, Larkin, RDA, Santiago, Chiesa, Burns, Rachmano. So he is a gatekeeper. The question is: Is Ian Gary one of those dudes, Jason? <sighs> so is he, he one of those dudes? Ian Gary is a guy, and and me and my buddy Pete Rogers Jr. have talked about this. Like, there's going to come a point where you want to fade him, and he has had moments where you expected him to shine. And he didn't shine the way you you think he would. I do like this matchup here for Ian Gary. I mean, he's I want to say he's a four to one betting favorite in this one. I want to say he's a four to one favorite against Neil Magny. Oh uh, no, he's a, he's approaching a five to one betting favorite. Looking over here, ESPN MMA minus four ninety. Go over to Best Fight Odds. Uh, let's see here. Let's see where Ian Gary's at. And by the way, he he was going to be a minus one seventy five betting favorite against Jeff Neal. So against wow. Neil Magny, let's see here. Uh, yeah, your best number is minus 480. He's pretty much minus 500 across the board. And that number has been climbing. Um, it opened up at minus 298, and the betting public went all in on him. I mean, look, I, I think that this should be Ian Gary's fight to lose. Um, you know, but he he's one of those guys that I, I see some deficiencies in his game. I just don't know if Neil Magny is going to be the guy that takes advantage of those deficiencies. Pretty sure I picked Danny Rodriguez to beat Ian Gary, and I felt like an idiot. Ian Gary ran through him last time out. That was one of those fights where Ian Gary is like, all right, fellas, let's go. I'm ready to go on this run. I'm an idiot. I'm picking Neil Magny. I think Neil Magny is going to pull off the upset. When I look at those betting odds – and I think of the deficiencies in what I see out of Ian Gary, I'm like, I'm going to go with that gatekeeper veteran who's a proven commodity if he's that big of an underdog. I just, I, I you know, I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go with the veteran. Seems like a major mistake. Seems like people who actually make money off of betting on mixed martial arts are saying, Daniel, that's a stupid idea. We're putting money on Ian Gary. I'm going Neil Magny here. Yeah, I mean, look, it's I, I think Ian Gary for me is is a pick in this one, but like I, I think it, it becomes of if you're Neil Magny, you probably just got to make this ugly fight, and I, I think if Neil wins, it's probably going to be a decision victory for him. Of course, you mentioned about Demont Blackshear stepping up here on six oh. days' notice after winning via. I mean, looked amazing last week. Looked amazing, third twister submission in UFC history. Now stepping up here to take on Mario Batista. Of course, Batista. Was supposed to take on Cody Garbrandt. You know, I, I think one of the things of it's like, man, he, you got Demon Blackshear, who I, I like the skill set here, but man, two weight cuts and back to back weeks. How's that going yeah. to affect him? G- give this guy, I mean, like, man, give this guy that, that G line, man. It's a gangster right here saying, you know, yeah, I'll step up on six days' notice to take this matchup against Mario Batista. Um, you know, look when I, when I think of Mario, I think of a guy who's got a lot of volume. He's out, out of the MMA lab there. Does have a little bit of a, a small uh, size disadvantage in this one, as as Demond Blackshear will have it here. I mean, look, I, I think in terms of this one, I mean, I, I expect Demond to try to get this matchup to the ground. I, I don't necessarily. I mean, look, I, he can clearly stand with Mario Batista, but I would expect him to try to get this one to the ground. But uh, I gotta go with my guy Mario here. I think he gets it done. I mean, obviously he's been in a full camp getting ready for Cody Garbrandt, so a little bit of a different stylistic matchup, but from what Cody would likely bring as opposed to what Demond can bring particularly with the grappling, but I do like Mario here. DeMond Blackshear might be a tougher fight than Cody Garbrandt for Mario Batista. Um, look, I'm going to go DeMond Blackshear here. The hardest part is the two weight cuts. 
The other hard part is the travel. You're talking about six day notice that turns into absolutely zero preparation. You're talking about just rehabilitation and getting ready to go back out there. But it's a beautiful story. Blackshear, again, on the prelims of just this of a, of a card at the apex that no one cares about to main card in the in the pay-per-view in the TD Garden. What a whirlwind. I get why he takes this fight because you look at where he was and where he's going to be this weekend, bro. This guy's going to be making the walk on the pay-per-view with a bunch of crazy drunk mass holes, loud. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. DeMond Blackshear has an opportunity to make a name for himself in a week. That is what I kind of love about this sport. I'm yeah. going to Blackshear. Kind of reminds me of the way Kevin Holland started to build a name for himself when he started taking all these fights on such a short notice. So uh, I hope Blackshear does something in the highlight reel. But Mario Batista, man, he is a tough challenge. I mean, what, four wins in a row? And a good little pay-per-view fight. I mean, obviously not necessarily worth the money, but I like the story, so I'll be watching. Look, I'll be interested by the time I get out of the stadium on Saturday night, maybe if I can find you know somewhere uh, inside the city to to be able to watch these pay per views. Uh, you know, we'll see what happens there. Of course, your opening fight of the night, you got Cheeto Vera taking on Pedro Munoz, and of course, Cheeto coming off that loss against Corey Sanhagen. And it's like I said earlier in the show, if you are Cheeto Vera, you're probably the biggest Sean O'Malley fan because you have to imagine, even though he's coming off a loss, if he can get a win against Pedro Munoz here, of course, it's been a very up and down for Pedro Munoz over the past couple of years that he could potentially surpass Corey Sanhagen. I mean, Corey Sanhagen may not like, like it, but I'm sure if Sean O'Malley probably has any say, if he's a champion, he'd probably right get there uh, against Cheeto Vera here. Well, I mean, Bro, what about Marab? Is, it, is he, like, hurt or something? Uh, Marab had surgery on God, his hand, maybe? Oh, so he might just be out of the equation? And yeah, he, he's, he's, he's injured. I know he's recovering. Um... God, I do. Because I want to say it was his hand surgery. Yeah, he had hand sur- so he had a hand surgery back at the end of May, out three to four months. So you're probably talking. He's probably in that time frame to get getting back in there. But um, you know, he he's a guy I would in put there. Marab, I would put Marab over Sanhagen, bro. I think Marab's the uncrowned champion at 135. Oh, I, I, yeah. I mean that the the way the way Marab fights, he he's just a tough matchup for so many people in this division. Yeah, but. I, but Cheeto O'Malley, let's do that one again. I agree. I agree. I think if you're a matchmaker and you're like, am I going to book Sanhagen or Sean, Marab and Sean, or Cheeto and Sean? I'm booking Cheeto and Sean. That's the yeah. fight I'm making. Yeah, it's a fight that, that makes the most sense. I mean, like, look, in terms of this matchup between Pedro and, and Cheeto, if you're in the Pedro camp, the mindset has to be is, look, we're go- we got a three-round fight here. We're going up against a guy who's notoriously known as a slow starter. Cheeto, he's talked about he's trying to change things, become a quicker starter, but it doesn't matter whether it's a three-round fight, a five-round fight. The first round, for whatever it is, he just can't get going. And so if you're Pedro Munoz, you you got to be on the attack to try to, you know, look, I think this fight likely is going to go 15 minutes. So if you're Pedro Munoz, I think the mindset has got to be is, we got to come out of ball fury, collect some early rounds, and then weather a third round storm for Cheeto Vera. Even though I, I, I'm be still like round two, round two. That's all we got to win. <laughs> if we win round two, we win the fight. <laughs> uh, look, I, I think Cheeto gets the job done, but like that to me, if if Pedro Munoz is going to pull off, this is this is how he pulls it off. Yeah, I think Cheeto clearly has that deficiency. 
But because right now, Pedro to me is on the downward swing and Cheeto is performing still at a very high level, I like Cheeto to win, even though the fact that this is a three-round fight, bro. So we look at the uh, preliminary card. Of course, the TV prelims will feature both the finale of the Ultimate Fighter. Of course, the last episode of the Ultimate Fighter aired last night. Uh, Brad Katona, uh, of course, we already knew who was going to be in there. He's going to take on Cody Gibson. So Cody Gibson, a chance to get back into the UFC. Austin Hubbard, Kurt Hallbott is the other one there at Lightweight. As I mentioned earlier in the show, if you did not see that Jason Knight-Kurt Hallbott fight, be sure to take advantage of that one. That was a, an excellent matchup. Between those two guys, of course, uh, it was a season that was, uh, well, dominated by Team Chandler. <laughs> As yeah. Connor did not have one fighter advance. Actually, he had Rico oh. DeScuolo advance. Uh, Brad Katona ended up being put onto his team, of course, there. Uh, they're over there. Of course, uh, if you look at, uh, by the way, mentioned about Austin Hubbard. Right here on the YouTube channel, I do have an interview with him. Uh, it's kind of interesting kind of talking to him. And, of course, as I mentioned, uh, Jason and I, Kurt Hallbop fight. If you did not see that, be sure to check out that fight over on ESPN+. Plus. But to me, as I look at the prelims, the story of the prelims has to be the return of Chris Wyman, right? 100%. 100%. It is the one thing I'm looking forward to on the prelims. Like, yeah, fine, these Ultimate Fighter fights are great. But Chris Weidman, thinking back the last time we saw him breaking his leg two years ago, this is the story. Former middleweight champion returns. Is it going to be a sad story, Jason, or will it be the comeback story that a movie is made out of? You know what the most shocking part of this fight is? What's that? If you, if if I said to you, and you didn't know who Chris Weidman's opponent was, let's say this is like two months ago, and I was like, hey, hey, Daniel, they just put Chris Weidman's return fight. He's going to be a part of UFC 292. The odds are you would likely said, oh, what young stud are they putting him up against? This is, yeah. this is like, to me, I love the matchmaking here by the UFC. This is typically not what they do. Yeah, it's not a heartwarming story. It's a, hey, old yeller, I need you to get behind the shed. <laughs> old yeller is going up against another old yeller. We got Tavares and Weidman. This is a winnable fight for Chris Weidman, mm -hmm. but I have no idea what the hell Chris is going to look like. I mean, if you're Brad Tavares, like, oh, you do th this is, okay, game. look, like, you know, <laughs> we're in a brutal sport, okay? How do you not come out with a leg kick? You have to. Chris Wyman's out there to separate me from consciousness. That cage door is locked. The only way this fight ends is a time limit. I tap out, I pass out, I knock out, or I get knocked out, or I make him submit. This is a brutal sport. You go after the leg, Johnny. You have to. Like, yeah. I mean, I mean, like, you're not trying to be a dick about it, but like, this is combat. But like, surely, you know, yeah, it, this is and, and to me, it's not just throwing one leg kick. I mean, it is flinging leg kicks. Now, of course, he could, I'm sure Brad and his team probably have some concerns about throwing a leg kick, and then Chris goes and tries to get the matchup to the ground. But, like, I don't know what to expect out of Chris Weidman. I mean, and let's be honest about it. And, I mean, you, you've heard some things Chris Weidman said. Like, Chris thinking he can still get to the title. Like, man, I don't know well, why he thinks that. Before the leg injury, he didn't look good. Before the leg injury, he did. He looked like a shell of, him for, of his and, former self. And he's 39 years old. 
Last time, this guy won back-to-back fights. 2014-2015. Yeah. Imagine him in there with DDP or Israel Adesanya. Think about five of his last six fights, he's been stopped via strikes. Well, I guess you could say he was stopped via strikes in his last one, too. I guess you could say that. His own strike. Uh, Yeah, it seems unlikely, but... Him winning this fight alone would be a beautiful story of resilience, oh, totally. facing adversity, and that's what gets you in the door to watch this preliminary fight. But it's going to yeah. be a tall task. Despite the fact that Brad isn't that young middleweight prospect killer, he's still a pretty qualified veteran fighter, and it's a good little fight for Weidman. And, uh, we'll see what happens in this story. By the way, uh, one of the uh, other prelims that, that sticks out to me, and it's one of these fights that I just hope it hits the mat, is Petrovsky and Mearshart just because of what those what those guys can do in, in terms of the ground there. Of course, uh, Gerald coming off that loss uh, against Joe Pfeiffer. Of course, Petrovsky, Pfeiffer, there's uh, the, the training relationship there between those two guys. But uh, UFC 292, I'm, I'm likely going to watch probably 95% of this after the fact. Um, you know, just because of, of what I got going on, but, uh, it, it should be a good night of fights. I mean, um, you know, just kind of go to my picks. Give me Aljo, give me Waylee, give me Gary, give me Batista. I'll go Vera, uh, give me Chris Weidman. Uh, don't feel good about going Gregory Rodriguez. It's tough to trust him, but I think he should get it. Oh God, man. Give me Kurt Hallbott in, in the lightweight finale. Um, and then the bantamweight finale, I'll go a bracket Katona. Um, then give me Petrovsky. And then the, the two female matchups. I'm, I'm at this point, the female matchups, just give me the underdogs because that's likely what's going to happen. Uh, but uh, I'll go uh, give me the favorite in, in uh, Karina Silva against Maria Moroz. And uh, Natalia is always a huge favorite. So, you know, but uh, it's women's MMA. Don't be shocked if both those underdogs win. Yeah, but I mean, I, I am selling my Andrea Lee stock. So I would go with Silva in both matchups. Uh, I'm going to go Gibson. I'm going to go Hubbard, Mearshot, Rodriguez, Weidman. And, yeah, I mean, we disagree a lot here. I mean, I like Vera and I like Zhang, but otherwise – oh, I like Aljo also. But I like Neil Magny and Damon Blackshear in the other fights. So those are my picks. And uh, also, you know, I'll throw PFL a bone. They got a card this Friday. It's pretty weak sauce, but – you know, Maurice Green now has the opportunity to take on Francis Ngannou now that Derek Lewis re-signed with the UFC. So uh, my big bull prediction, yeah, I know. <laughs> my big bull prediction, my big bull prediction gets underway as Maurice Green will advance to the finals of the PFL Heavyweight Tournament. That's my official prediction. Also, Larissa Pacheco in action, but overall, it's a pretty lackluster semifinals for the heavyweights and women featherweights. Did you see the editors with Derek Lewis this week? No. He got a commercial. I did not see this. For who? Manscaped. <laughs> oh, I did see a Manscaped commercial. And perfect. That's a perfect marriage of product and athlete. Uh, let me end you on this one. Do you believe this person or not? Joanna Janjacek has officially informed the UFC that she's retiring. I don't Hell believe no. you. Don't believe you. And I saw Ian Heinish is retired. Also well, Ian, it that is concussion related. Oh, never yeah. mind. Yeah, I he he's him. he's been dealing with this for a while now. That's why he has been competing. Uh, but yeah, it's concussion related. I mean, we we both know in the sport, never never believe retirements. 
Yeah, that's why I almost laughed when you said about Ali Malay retiring with this fight against Carmouche. I, like, I don't believe it. I, I trust me. I asked, I asked her the same damn question, and, and you, and remember, I'll have to pull the clip up, but it, it was one of those things where you could even see in her face she was like. Eh. It's just yeah. that's the way the sport works, man. Yeah, <laughs> you know. I mean, Misha Tate came back, right? Like, I mean, I'm sure you want us to come back without a doubt. Yeah, I, you, you just never believe retirement's in mixed martial arts. I mean, oh, let me just ask you this: and the one to hear, if you want comes back, who does she fight? Ooh, that's a good one. Let me pull up the uh, straw rank rankings. See, see who makes sense. Thirty-five years old. Wow, she's thirty-five years old already. Wow. Yeah. Time flies. <laughs> it certainly does. It certainly does. Uh, let's see here. Uh, who would be the matchup that would make the most sense for her? The only one I could see is if Zhang Wali loses the championship. They it, if she were to come back in the next six months. I'll give you two names. Yeah. Marina Rodriguez or Jessica Andrash. I think Jessica Andrash is a great matchup for you wanting to come back on. Yeah. Don't put her against Tatiana Suarez. Nope. Don't want to see her against Carlos Sparza because she'll literally butcher Carlos Sparza. Yeah, no. Maybe a fight against Amanda Rebus. All right. Better chance they fight again in the UFC. Yoani Jacek or Amanda Nunez? Amanda Nunez. Amanda Nunez. Because I think the UFC has more motivation to get her back in there. Yeah, they could, yeah. She, well she's could. just a bigger draw. She's a bigger draw. And, yeah, I'm sure the UFC would like to get back in the Yoana business. But Amanda Nunez, at this point, she's the female GOAT. And, uh, yeah, I think, you know, maybe they signed Kayla Harrison in a year. Or whenever Kayla gets out of her Bell Tour slash PFL deal, and they come calling for a man to do this. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I know Ramondi kind of asked about the question about uh, the Kayla about going to one thirty five. I, I just, you know, I, I just don't know how. And, and Kayla's kind of talked about that of you know, that's not really maybe a, a realistic thing, but it, it's just it's kind of you know. It's one of those things that you talk about the PFL. Your most Marco fighter probably is not going to fight your promotion all twenty twenty three. It's kind of crazy. Jake Paul. Well, that'll that'll be twenty twenty four. So yeah, when they do that paper, when they do that paper. I mean, look, you know, it's they're going to do that pay per view in twenty twenty four. If Ryan Bader wins in October, Ryan Bader may be your leading candidate to be Francis Ngannou's PFL debut. Yeah, if, I think you're right. If Bellator and PFL right. come together. I agree with you. I'm, oh, with oh, Derek Lewis, yeah. And I don't know if you saw, Vanim Nemkov has vacated the Bell, or, or at least plans to vacate the Bellator light heavyweight title because he's moving up to heavyweight. Ooh. I mean, yeah. Bader's like, come on, bro. Why are you following me here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me get you. By the yeah, way, as yeah. we get out of here, uh, we got any uh, Daniel Ishmael uh, appearances this weekend? 
just one. It was a really busy week last week, as I mentioned. Three matches last week, and it was fun. I felt like every match I got a little bit better. Took some of the lessons I learned from the previous one, and I thought I had my best match on Sunday. Did a superplex. I was the one doing it, not taking it, so that was good. I hung out with Ricardo Rodriguez of WWE fame. He stayed at my place. I, I saw I saw his picture. I, I mean, he looked like he's gotten bigger. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the thing is, like, once you get off TV, it's time to, you know, have some fun. But, uh, you know, the thing is this. Appearances. You can get someone who's, like, ripped, college football star, and you put him in the wrestling ring, he'll get gassed. And you get someone who looks like me, who – and not that I'm in good condition, but someone who's surprising, and they'll, like, run circles around you. It's really weird. There's a different type of wrestling shape. So, yeah, it's crazy, bro. But also, when I had him over, it was like, let's get fat. Like, he hadn't <laughs> been in Texas in a while. So it was like, let's go to Whataburger. Let's let's hit up some awesome Mexican food because he lives in Pennsylvania. So okay. I wanted to treat him right. And so we'd certainly – it was it was a bit of a mistake to eat some tacos for lunch and then go to his seminar at 6 o'clock. And I felt like ass. I felt like ass. But uh, it, was, it was amazing. He is – very, very smart when it comes to pro wrestling. And he knows so much more than so many people. And he's well-traveled. And, um, you know, even though, you know, people like watch WWE and they're like, oh, he was just a manager. Well, as I know, he was like a wrestler all across different countries. These people who you just see is, oh, they're just a manager. Oh, they're just that. To get to the WWE, they have to like do so much in the wrestling world that they are literally geniuses about it. And he was one yeah. of them. So uh, it was cool. I, I try not to be too annoying. I try not to ask him too many questions, but I'm sure I was a little annoying. Yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned this clip to Daniel before we started the show. I was, uh, Logan Paul was on Stephen A. Smith's podcast, and, and he mentioned about how professional wrestling is much harder than, than boxing. And, you know, and, and Logan kind of, he broke it down. He's like, you know, I mean, he's like, obviously, man, you got to be tough to be a boxer because, you know, you're getting hit and all that. But, you know, the way he talked about professional wrestling and, and you see some of those bumps that Logan Paul takes, you know, him and Ricochet, whew, those boys taking some bumps. Yeah, I remember watching that match as it was happening backstage and uh, everyone watching the show was impressed. It was crazy. And yes, several of those things looked nuts. The way he landed, it was like two times where it was almost like it was scary. But Logan Paul is just uh, – he should be proud of what he's done, bro. I mean, he's, he's done, and he's he, he went to the play, bro, and he hit a grand slam every time he goes out there. Mad respect for what that dude has – I mean, you think – I mean, obviously, you've been doing this now for a couple of years, and, and to see what Logan Paul has done – and I guess Shawn Michaels probably deserves a lot of credit as being kind of his trainer. But, man, to see – and it just shows, man, this kid's athletic. I mean, athletics can be, and, you know, he's teased about trying to do an MMA matchup. And I wouldn't be shocked if that happens in the UFC at some point. I, I wouldn't be shocked. Yeah, me neither. Me neither. Seems like uh, something that will probably happen. It just seems like anything these two dudes want to do, they end up doing it, and they end up making a crap load of money. Dude, it's it's crazy. You know, I mean, it's... 
It's a world we live in. It's a world we live in. Yeah. But uh, as always, we appreciate everyone tuning in for this episode of the podcast. Of course, new episodes come out every Wednesday. Of course, you can get it on your favorite podcasting platforms. Also on YouTube, we'll be back next week. I'm sure we'll take a look back at what happened at UFC 292 and get you ready for the upcoming UFC event. So we will talk to you next week.